Hi, everyone. I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 34 of Yogaland. On today's episode, I channel my inner rage, and it's all for your benefit. I talked to Sally Kempton about anger. Sally is really so uh, gifted at working with emotional states and bringing that into practice and technique. And she's also just incredibly knowledgeable about the yoga tradition, specifically tantric tradition. That's really hard to say. Say that three times fast. Tantric tradition. So I wanted to know from Sally what the yoga tradition says about the emotion of anger. I think that clearly there's a lot of anger brimming over in our society in our larger world right now. It's a really difficult emotion to channel in a positive way. And so I think that as yoga students and teachers and aspirants, um, it's worth looking at, honestly. It's worth recognizing that it exists and it's worth figuring out in our own life and in our own world and in our own body how to work with it in a way that's positive so that we can create more positive ripples and effects in the world. So that's what we talk about today. I'm going to leave the intro really brief and just get right to the interview. So here goes. I think it's just a a great time for this topic. We're going to talk about anger today. And my feeling in terms of my learning of, of the yoga tradition, which this is why I'm talking to you, because I think you have a, a, a more a deeper background than I do. But I feel like there's not a lot of clear teaching about anger in spiritual traditions. And I, and I think also, you know, societally, it, it's, it's like we don't really address it. We don't really talk about it in the open. It's kind of like money or sex. It's just like something we don't mm-hmm. talk about. We pretend it's not there. I also feel like, you know, We've been conditioned to believe, and I don't. I don't think this is just a Western thing. We're, but we've been conditioned to believe that women are not supposed to get angry, especially women. It's not considered feminine, and I have theories about that that we'll get to later. But my my first question is: from your years of study and teaching and practice, what do you feel like is the the basic spiritual teaching about anger? Is there room for anger in spiritual life, or is it something we can really hope to transcend? Boy, it's a really, really good question. And my own understanding about emotions and their place in our practice is fairly nuanced and complex, as you know. But, you know, I mean, on the one hand, on the, you know, let's call it the far right spectrum about anger, the Bhagavad Gita and all really all the yogic texts literally demonize anger. And in, and in fact, that's true all through the Western tradition, you know, in, in the wonderful and very hardcore, you know, Christian yogic texts in the in the Philokalia, which is the, a collection of the teachings of the Desert Fathers from you know the um, the three hundreds and four hundreds and five hundreds A.D. They called emotions like anger and lust and fear demons. So the idea was that you would get possessed by these demons. You would be you know like Saint Anthony in your cell trying to commune with God, and suddenly you'd be overwhelmed by something that seemed to come from outside, which is, which would might be anger. I think those guys had a lot of problem with sexual desire, but being, you know, being young men. But 
But anger was one of the big ones. And they also had some interesting uh, so-called demons like, you know, getting bored with your practice, which again, if you've, if you've ever done a retreat, you know, is one of the big issues. So the idea of the way you dealt with these emotions, and it's also, you know, pretty much the way that classical yogic texts talk about it is you just, you stand up to them, you get rid of them, you know, you, you essentially repress and suppress them. So as you know, then that, and of course, what we've come to realize in, in our lifetime, in our scientific traditions, is that repressing anger uh, just makes it go into your body and makes you sick. Or there's a, a tendency in in the yogic world, especially in the traditional yogic world, especially among men, because you're right, anger is not considered a feminine emotion. But there's a long tradition in in the yogic texts of angry yogis. Hmm. You know, like this the sage Durvasa, who's a major character in in many of the yogic texts, who was well known for being extremely irascible. Isn't that a great word? Yes. <laughs> you know, he was like like he would he was he was a little bit like Donald Trump. He would just get completely ticked off at imagined insults or if somebody seemed to disrespect him or just because he was in a bad mood. And because he had all these yogic siddhis, uh, all these like all these powers, if he got mad at you, he could curse you big time. So you'd be in terrible trouble. Hmm. So there is this long tradition of of powerful yogis, you know, tapasvins, that is, yogis who'd done extreme practices and controlled their senses, you know, and acquired powers to bless and curse people. So uh, anger anger in such a yogi was very dangerous for everyone around them. Hmm. And from what I can see from those stories, they're often given as cautionary tales, obviously. You know, here's this guy who spent you know, most of his life controlling his mind and somebody looks at him cross-eyed and he unleashes a curse because he hasn't dealt with his anger. So it's been, it's very clear uh, in the tradition that anger is a dangerous emotion. But again, there's no, no solution for it except deeper meditation. Then along come the tantras. So the tantric texts especially the meditation texts like the Vijnana Bhairava. The Vijnana Bhairava is a, it's a 7th century, probably 7th century, maybe a little earlier, meditation text that gives uh, 112 practices for tuning into the self, tuning into the truth. And the, the name could be translated as the experiential wisdom, Vijnana means wisdom, uh, spoken by Bhairava, Bhairava is one of the names of Shiva or of the you know, of consciousness in a form. So um, in the Vijnana Bhairava and in another text of Tantra called the Spanda Karikas, this verses on vibration, there's there's verses about intense emotions that are the heart of what I would call the tantric method of dealing with anger, fear, and other other emotions. And what they say is Intense emotions like anger, if you tune deeply into the felt sense of your anger and really follow it to its source, which of course means letting go of the story, what you find is that at the heart of anger is Shakti, is a very, very powerful energy that once you recognize it as pure energy, then you can begin to work with 
that energy in a productive way. So I'm thinking that that's probably the thing you, you'd like to talk about. Yeah, definitely. Um, things is how do we work with anger productively? So Yes, absolutely. I mean, it just we are at a critical time where there's so much anger. And some, you know, I mean, of course, some of it is warranted. So it does seem critical. And, and you know, like there's so much anger between individual citizens in our country right now. And that's not seeming to, that doesn't seem to be helping anything. <laughs> so it's like, how can you actually take this emotion that's, you know, sometimes a valid emotion and deal with it in a positive way? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, of course, I completely agree with you that the level of volatility you know, of hair trigger anger that we see in this country, that we see on the highways, for instance, you know, that we see in family situations. It's, it's really, it really does feel as though, you know, we've, we were a society for years that, uh, that repressed anger Mm -hmm. and, you know, somehow we've taken the lid off, but we haven't figured out (laughs) how to work with it. It's like you repress it, but it comes out somehow. It manages to manifest. If you you know, if you're not looking at it, it it will still it's still there. Like you said, it's like I guess because it's like an essential energy in your body. Yeah, and you know, one of the ways to look at anger that that I have found very useful, and this actually comes from a psychotherapist named Carla McLaren. I'm not quite sure where she learned it, but it's very helpful is that the the reason for anger, you know, the, the, the gift that anger gives us is to protect, you know, to, to, so anger is what allows us to say no, to create boundaries, to actually, to draw, draw red lines and say, you know, go farther than this because it's, so I would say that pure anger, you know, the, and I, I know, you know, what that feels like there is an experience of pure anger that can come up in response to something unjust, you know, or a, or some kind of boundary violation, somebody um, insults you or, you know, takes something that belongs to you. And this, this anger comes up and you speak it uh, strongly, but clearly. That's sort of the way you would to a five-year-old. If you're, if you're a nursery school teacher and one of the kids takes the other kid's toys, uh-huh. you know, you step in and that, that type of anger, the anger that energizes you to right a wrong, it's a very, very powerful emotion and very important and should be part of everybody's arsenal, right? You know, right. So people who can't use anger are are often people who get stepped on or can't protect the people around them. Hmm. I find that there is this question, if your anger, if you're healthy with your anger, which of course not everybody is. But if you have a healthy, open, clear response uh, response mechanism, then you can feel outrage come up. You act on it, and then it leaves. You let it go. Right. And which, which is yeah, which is like a major, major um, piece of useful anger. Right. It doesn't simmer. Right. But of course, most of the time, what happens is that we don't let it go. We go on telling ourselves the story. We- right. You have to be able to find your voice in the moment for that for that situation to work. So maybe it's like if that's hard for you to find your voice in the moment and you're just trembling or you're just unable to be articulate, like 
maybe you just say to yourself, like, this is practice. And if my voice shakes when I address this situation, like, that's okay. I mean, and I think you also have to be able to cope with whatever response you get to your voicing your side of things. Really true. Uh, yeah, you, it's it's one thing to have the initial angry outburst. It's another thing to deal with the pushback. Right. I guess just as they have anger management workshops, they also have, um, you know, voicing your frustration workshops. And it's a very useful thing to practice. Like, okay, what do you do? And, and how do you manage? Because I, I think that for many people, especially women, uh, especially people who grow up in households where anger is dangerous, there's an automatic translation mechanism that goes on. It's like you, the anger comes up and it's something suppresses it automatically or it turns into fear. Or what I notice, you know, and you mentioned this in the, you know, in the notes you sent me, questions you sent me. Mm-hmm. If we're used to repressing anger, it very often masks itself as depression. And after a while, you don't even know you're angry. Because it's got, you know, it's become, it's become this leaden kind of depressed feeling. It's one of the reasons, obviously, why people who suffer from depression often, as they start to heal, get in touch with this utter rage that, that's, you know, been, been sitting there in the cells for years because they couldn't express it. Right. So I would say, and I, I have a feeling you agree with me, that uh, before you know, before we start working with our anger with other people, we probably, probably makes sense to start to find it ourselves, Mm -hmm. you know, to, you know, to kind of sit, sit down and tell yourself the stories that make you angry and let yourself experience what anger feels like. And, you know, tune into the intensity of it. And, and actually, and I, I found this is very helpful. Actually, rehearse in advance how you deal with a situation in which you you are triggered and need to respond. You know, what's the most skillful way for you to deal with it? And for some people, dealing with it in the moment is not very skillful because they're not that good at that kind of back and forth. Right. And sometimes you have to, you know, you have to wait until the anger's died down and and discuss it with the person in a calmer way. Right, readdress it. So two questions come up for me. Um, one is, I'm wondering if you agree that anger is often, if you do try to like trace the roots of it, that anger is often like a crossover emotion. Like I notice when sometimes when I get angry, it's actually like deep seated fear about something. Yeah, you know. So it's like I'm, I can't even think of an example right now. I, I well, I mean, I think of a very strange example, but you know, when my daughter was born, she she had like feeding issues. She had a really really hard time um, feeding, and it was 
pretty scary and for a while and at least a month. And that doesn't sound like very long, but when every day, you know, you're trying to feed your baby and like, you don't know if your baby's going to gain weight and all those things, it's pretty stressful. And I remember both Jason and I just like feeling so angry about it, you know, just so angry and like enraged. And we knew we weren't mad at her, but we were both just like in this sort of state of rage for several weeks. And we finally looked at each other one night and I said, I think we're really scared. You know, it just, and I think it was like a self-protection mechanism to for it to come out as anger. But I don't know. I just, I feel that way often about anger. It's like, like you said, there's kind of pure anger when you're responding to an injustice or, or something like that, um, or even like someone you love being wronged that, that often like incites pretty intense anger in people. And then there's like that murky place where yeah. it could be like loneliness, it could be fear, it could be sadness, it could be, I don't know, um, it seems like can require a, a lot of unpacking, you know? Yeah, it's really true. I, And this is where, you know, there's really no substitute for self-awareness. Because I, I feel that a lot of us, we have emotions that are our front, you know, the emotions that we front load, right? So I mean, for instance, I, just speaking about my own relationship with anger, I have never thought of myself as an angry person. You know, I, I'm much more prone to fear and grief. In fact, what I discovered when I really started to look at my emotions, at my reactions, is that the deeper emotion behind the fear and behind the grief is actually anger. And because the anger that you know, the source of my anger from a psychological point of view is very young, which I think it often is for us, you know, that so much of the anger that we feel as human beings comes from, you know, really deep old stuff, like, you know, your mother or your caregiver letting you cry in the crib for three hours. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you don't even remember that that ever happened. Right. But, uh, but there's this, you know, this incredible feeling of, of rage that's mixed up with abandonment, that's mixed up with fear, you know, that's very, very primal. So it becomes, it becomes buried, it becomes a kind of foundational emotion. And you discover probably that, you know, especially as you, as you said, if you're a woman, you discover that anger is actually not an acceptable emotion. So instead, you let it become resentment, and you walk around and you're always, you know, kind of simmering. Uh, and we know so many people like that, you know, they, they never blow up, but you just feel, you know, it registers as disapproval or stubbornness or, you know, just a bad mood. Right. People who are kind of punitive about relationships, you know, like people who kind of keep score in relationships. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that's kind of interesting to me too, this was the other thing I was thinking as you were talking is, um, when you were talking about how, you know, addressing a situation in the moment often diffuses the anger. Um, but that that can be really difficult for a lot of people. And I was thinking about like when you, when you have a kid, you learn really quickly that, you know, they do things to push your buttons. And if you show them you're really angry, like let's say you react in the moment they kind my my daughter will kind of smile and laugh because it's a little bit of nervousness, but it's also a little bit of like, ooh, I've got you. 
Uh, yeah. Right. Like this, 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 there's this thing I, I, I feel sort of, um, I feel sort of torn because I guess I wish that more people and more women would feel more comfortable just like expressing anger in the moment and, um, just like getting it out. But at the same time, it can be kind of disempowering to, to address someone if you're not in a calm place, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, I, yeah. And there's another piece of it. I think you're totally right. And I, I've seen kids do that. It's like, I've got you, you're no better than me. Basically. Mm, right. You're right. calling yourself the girl up and you're just, you know, you just lost it. And I do think that it, in today's parenting situations where there's so much more equality between parents and kids, you know, and parents, parents don't do that, you know, because I said so thing these days that the parents used to do when I was growing up. It's like the game of, you know, who's, who's, who's a better person, <laughs> so to speak, yeah. starts off pretty early. And especially in spiritual circles or in yogic circles, where, as you, as you know, we've been saying, anger is considered a character weakness. It's very important, I think, especially with kids to establish that there are different kinds of anger, you know? Yeah. Why, you know, why certain things make you angry. There's a piece um, in uh, Dan Siegel's book, Mind Sight. Do you know that book? It's you know, very smart. He's a neuroscientist. Oh, he's cool. a psychiatrist. He's, a, he's at UCLA, I think, and he's sort of a big person in the Buddhist world. Uh, and it's about the brain and the insight capacity and how you use the, you know, the. I think it's the frontal cortex. It's, you know, the one of the, the newer parts of the brain gives us the capacity for self-awareness. And yet the lizard brain, you know, does its fight or flight thing. And the limbic brain, the emotional brain, is subject to getting completely swamped by, by emotions like anger and grief. So he tells a story about how he was out with his kids and they were at a restaurant and one of the kids was teasing the other kid and he blew up. You know, he just got really angry and then felt very embarrassed about it and kind of went into the next room and calmed himself down and then came out and apologized to his son and, uh, explained what had triggered him. And I, I thought that was, I was impressed with that, you know, with that capacity that a conscious parent has to, yes. to look at. And, and I'm sure you're like that also. And I, I do think that those of us who live in a world where people are working on ourselves and, and children are born to parents who are working on ourselves, it becomes possible to, to actually backtrack and, you know, give each other feedback around issues like like anger and anger triggers. Yeah. And it's actually very beautiful, you know. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, my sister said that to me a long time ago. She said, you know, just if something comes up and you feel like you didn't handle it well, circle back when you are comfortable and think of it as like mending and attending, you know, just attend attend to the situation, attend to the other person you know, explain, like you said, explain that everyone loses, loses it sometimes. And, um, and then it, it does, it does addressing things later 
gives the other person, even if they're a little person, gives the other yeah. person a chance to say what's what happened for them. And it's a, and they actually learn it pretty quickly. Like my daughter's four and now she'll say, you know, I was upset before because you weren't letting me do da 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 whatever it is. And it's funny because some of the things she says are hilarious. Like, <laughs> you know, like I was upset because you were making me go to school and you didn't let me watch a TV show. And I'm like, right, right, yeah, right. and that's called being a parent, sweetie. But it's just, I'm still happy that she like tries to express, even if even if what she's saying like isn't something I can give her, I'm still happy she's trying to figure it out and tell me because then she's not oh, suppressing it. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's so great. So you were saying in the earlier text that the, these emotions were like considered demon emotions. But then the approach um, or the thinking about it, that shifts once you get to the tantras. Is that, is that right? Yeah. One of the characteristics of, of, the, of the tantric uh, yogic texts is this understanding about divine energy as the source of everything. So in other words, the, the, t- the basic tantric teaching is that if you go down to the heart of anything, which of course includes the physical world, you're going to find energy, and if you go down to the heart of that energy, you're going to find that that it's it's Shakti. It's the you know the the ultimate creative energetic source of everything, and that the secret that you know that's of course in the way the West thinks of tantra. You know the West thinks of tantra as working with sexual energy, but that it's really it really is. It's a real tantric principle. You know, is that sexual energy, anger energy, fear energy, all can lead you to the true source of everything, which is so. I have found, as in my in my work with my own anger and with other people, that the most effective way to to deal with your own anger actually does demand that you you sit with it. You know, you learn how to how to establish a, uh, a a kind of a spacious container. And you generally have to meditate a bit to be able to do this. And then in that container, which it it's not very skillful to try to do this while you're in the middle of an argument. You know, it's just it's a very hard thing to do. But if you make a practice of learning how to rec- recognize your triggers. So, you know, for instance, when you're in a conversation with a friend or with your or with your beloved, and you you start to you start to speak out of anger, there's a moment beforehand when you make that choice. You know, I mean, we're we're we all of us recognize that moment, and you can often get a friend or get Jason or you know uh, even get your daughter to you know, to point out to you when you've just spoken angrily Mm. and then you can trace back, okay, what was it that I was feeling in that moment that made me feel like it was okay to, um, you know, to say something really nasty. Let's say you're being inappropriate with it. Uh, And you can start to, to recognize, you know, when I would call it the neurotic anger comes up, you know, the, the inappropriate anger the anger that is not coming really from the situation, but is coming from, you know, you having some situation triggering your old anger swamp, which we all have. So there's a certain amount of self-awareness that we can develop. And I really recommend getting feedback from others about it. If you're not, if you're not aware of what's going on when you, 
when you are inappropriately angry. And when I say you, I don't mean you, Andrea. <laughs> I mean you. You be um, I'm going to pay you $150 after this for our therapy session. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Once you kind of isolated it, you know, I know for me, you know, first of all, it took me years to become aware of how kind of globally angry I was capable of getting and to identify the different layers of it. You know, like, I think for most of us, suppressed anger comes out in a kind of impatience, a uh, frustrated tone of voice, et cetera. And what I, what I saw when I really looked into it was that when I gave myself permission to act angry, it was usually, there was usually some component of self-righteousness in it. <laughs> you know, I, and it's interesting to look at this yourself. Like, like I had to feel that I was right. Hmm. Uh, in order to feel comfortable expressing anger, which is not to say that I, I didn't and don't express anger when I'm wrong, but there's something about, you know, this kind of self-righteous thing. And then I see it a lot in the, in the conversation around Donald Trump, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. so many of our peers feel so righteous about what a horrible guy he is. Yeah. You know, people feel that, that we have permission to say anything, you right. know, to, act out out in any way and i you know that obviously is not an effective way of dealing with um yeah i mean when you get into really self-righteous anger you you're you stop listening you essentially cut off communication i mean i think unless you're like you know in a group march situation which is really like i think in a lot of ways an expression of anger i think that's a healthy expression of anger yeah. Um, and I don't think that's a situation where you want to really listen. And that's just a, a, like a container of time. That's a set amount of time. Unless you're in that situation, I think a lot more listening needs to happen on, in, on both sides and both, you know, on all sides. I shouldn't say that there aren't just two, there aren't just two parties in this country. There are people yeah, with, a, sure. with a spectrum of views, you know? Well, I mean, that's an interest, you know, that, that way of dealing with anger Let's call it the nonviolent communication strategy, uh, which is, you know, uh, as far as it goes, a, a very great skill set for, for looking at how you communicate displeasure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, if if we can learn how to how to follow rules about communication um, that allow listening to go on, it's certainly going to change the level of the discourse. Of course. <laughs> the thing about listening and nonviolent communication is that you have to have to some degree learned how to control your own emotions in order to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, so. And you have to have a certain amount of self-esteem too. You know, you have to be able to, I think like when you were saying, you know, have it's good to have a partner or someone close to you, like let you know when they see you kind of flip over into that, <laughs> you, you have to be able to handle criticism. Like you have to be able to say, okay, I can look at myself and I can, I can allow this other person to feedback to me and I trust them enough and I feel like stable enough in who I am that I can handle that I might be doing something quote unquote, like wrong sometimes, you know, you have to be able to, yeah, it's like you have to have that, that strong foundation within yourself. Boy, that is so true. And, you know, I think we both agree that the real turning point in life is when you are, you become willing to accept feedback. 
Yeah. You, know, you like yourself enough so that you, you actually, you want people to tell you how you can be better. So true. So true. It's like, I can take it. I can take it. Yeah. Yeah. Because we all have um, blind spots. Yeah. I mean, to, to actually have relationships in your life where you can express anger and know that, that the person you're talking to is going to be able to tell you when you're off the wall, mm-hmm. at, but it is also willing to say, yes, you were right and I was wrong. Yeah. I mean, that's such an amazing, you know, that's what it is to be a human being in relationship, I feel. It's like where there, there's nothing that can't be said, and yet there's, you know, there's a self-responsibility and a mutual responsibility to value the truth and kindness equally. Yeah. It's also that you trust each other enough to know that, you know, you might have a difference of opinion sometimes, or one of you might be flat out wrong sometimes, but essentially underneath it, like you're both kind of fighting the good fight. If that's a an expression that makes sense, you know, in this situation, it's like, yeah, because you're not going to be perfect all the time. Um, but, uh, and that, and that takes a lot of trust too. To, to like allow yourself to be vulnerable with another person and to trust, like, say, for example, that they're not going to leave if things get too ugly, you know? Yeah. 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 Really true. Really true. So one question that I had when you were talking about, um, the tantric view, um, I kind of wonder if this is where, well, I don't know what the root of it is, but I, I guess I see a certain amount of bypassing in spiritual communities from time to time with, with difficult emotions and especially like around anger and action, you know, I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit, if that, if that's something that can, I don't know if people could work with that themselves, because it, like you said, it requires a certain amount of self-awareness. So you talk, when you talk about bypassing, are you talking about, I'm talking about that kind of, um, one example is um, a friend of mine told me she was in a teacher training and the teacher said something like, you know, anger isn't really a, a yogic emotion. And, you know, basically just a- acting as though the person had kind of transcended it. And I don't really see a place for anger in, in the community and it's unhealth- unhealthy. And um, and someone brought up, someone brought up, um, Black Lives Matter, actually. And apparently she said, oh, I don't watch the news. So it's that kind of like turning it off, like turning things off that are uncomfortable in this spirit of like evolvement, right? Like sort of. <laughs> yeah, I, I obviously don't subscribe to that way of thinking. I think it's incredibly important to be witnesses of both the beauty and the you know, and the ugliness in the world. Mm. And that said, of course, you know, when you really pay attention to the news and to what's going on in the world, to the pain and the, you know, the dysfunction that's going on in the world, you will tend to be seized with a lot of non-yogic emotions. And so I think for each of us, there are definitely going to be times when you, you, you don't want to read the papers. You don't want to be around people who trigger you because you're trying to create a cocoon of practice 
And I do think that's legitimate. I just don't think it's legitimate as a permanent way of life. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, if you're on retreat or if you're if you're trying to work with a sickness or if you have a young child, you know, a baby, there are certain circumstances in which you want to protect yourself. So, and then a, a remark like that, like anger is not a yogic emotion, uh, has some validity, you know, it's, but that said, the truth is that nothing would ever change in this physical world if people didn't get angry at injustice hmm. and use the energy of it for change. And I think the, the issue that underlies what you're saying is that we each of us need to learn how to channel legitimate anger. And I, you know, and I do believe that anger can be legitimate. It can be a signal that there's something off. The you know, the question is always how you work with it, how you handle it. My guru, who was a classical yogi in many ways, had enormous discipline and also was extremely fiery. You know, I mean, he he had what you could call a hair trigger temper. <laughs> you were always kind of walking on eggshells around him because especially, you know, because he didn't speak English and <laughs> most didn't speak Hindi. You know, you could say something that you would think was completely innocent. And uh, he would, it would, the way it would be translated or the way it would be received would, uh, would be met with a fiery response. So, he, but he used, he was very, was very interesting on the subject of anger. And he used to use anger as a way of, of actually zeroing in on his students, you know, mistakes or misunderstandings. And it was very effective hmm. because of, uh, not because it cowered, it scared people, although it did, but because there was a shakti in his anger, which was the result of his state, which actually gave his anger the capacity to be a sort of a sword for your bullshit. Hmm. There was that. It wasn't punitive. It was tra- it was transformative. Exactly. Very well said. It was not punitive. It was transformative. And it was over. It was over the minute it was done. You know, he never held on to it. The next time you saw him, it was as if it never happened. And uh, what what those of us who, you know, who had all the issues that we have with anger in our society had to do was to learn to take it as lightly as he did. Mm. And that was complicated. I, I mean, it's, you know, nobody likes to be yelled at. Uh, <laughs> so, but I'll just say one thing about his anger that sort of blew me away, two things. I'm very private and I, you know, I, I really, especially in those days, it's not a big deal for me now, but in those days, especially the idea of being called out in public about something I'd done wrong was like my idea of the most humiliating thing that could ever happen. Right. Yeah. So we're in a meeting and this, this happened several times. We're in a meeting and he has called a group of us in to, uh, to scold us about something that we had done as a group. And he's, he was looking around the group. And he's accusing, literally accusing each of us of having been responsible. Only one of us was responsible, right? So we're all, it's sort of like the whole platoon being punished. Right. But every time his eyes would meet mine, that I would lose all sense of body consciousness and I would be literally in space with stars and planets whirling around me, this vast blue sky filled with, you know, unbelievably powerful love and energy. And then his 
his gaze would move on to the next person and I would be back in my normal consciousness. So there was a kind of magic, if you want to use that word, in his anger um, that in many, many ways shifted my capacity for, um, you know, for, for exactly what we were talking about earlier, for taking feedback, for not taking it personally, et cetera. You know, he used to say, don't imitate me. Don't, you know, my anger transforms other people's anger. Don't you imitate me because you don't, you're, you can't do that. Right. Your anger is not of that kind. So I became very conscious in knowing him of the usefulness of anger. If you're completely clear, you know, which he was, he used it as a weapon, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So, and I mean, he also wasn't like out of control in the moments that he would, yeah. He was never out of control. And that's not to say that he didn't make a lot of enemies. <laughs> you know, I mean, people, people would be sort of blown away by, you know, by one of those demonstrations. But no, I, he was never out of control. In fact, he had a heart condition and he had been told by his doctors that he was not supposed to, you know, get angry. And I, I remember once he was in a room full of, of his his old devotees, uh, and he was he was scolding one of them, and in the middle of the scolding, he stopped and took his blood pressure, and then went back to scolding the guy. <laughs> you know, he was he was really he was a great yogi, and in you know in that tradition, um, this is something that Westerners have a very hard time understanding. But in that tradition, one of the signs of a you know of a strong teacher was that, that they, they get angry, you know? Yeah. So even though anger is not considered to be a yogic emotion in India, the teacher is paradoxically enough given permission to get angry. And in fact, if the teacher doesn't get angry, uh, he's not considered, or she is not considered the real deal. <laughs> That's pretty fascinating. It's completely interesting. It's kind of the nature of patriarchy that the person with the power is allowed to get angry, whereas the person who has less power gets punished for the same thing. So there's that. Yeah. But, um, but uh, I do think that one of the benefits of recognizing that that anger is useful is to sort of see it as as a weapon that you have to deploy skillfully, right? You know, like you. It's sort of like you don't want to use a hammer uh, to open a jar. <laughs> you don't want to use anger when persuasion might be a better tactic, you know. Or mm. So then it becomes a question, and I, I think this is really true of all emotions. Then it becomes a question of really learning how to work with your own emotions so that you're not at their mercy, but you know how to how to skate with the energy of every form of of emotion. You know what I mean? Can you say a little bit more about that? It's interesting. Yeah. In Indian philosophy and in Indian aesthetics, actually, there's the system of the nine rasas, you know, that which are the flavors of really emotional. They're, they're the flavors of emotion that are that are part of, let's say, the the palate of every human being. So and it's a little bit arbitrary, I would perhaps include different things than they than they have officially, but it's a description that comes from theater, actually, that anger, fierceness is an emotion, it is a rasa, it's called it's called Raldri, 
There's another emotion, hasta, which is the emotion of laughter. There's an emotion of romance, you know, which can be either loving feelings or actual sexual lust. There's the rasa of disgust, which is an interesting one. So, so, and in, you know, if, you know, if you remember an Indian dance there, they do this whole gestural play of expressing these emotions with their facial expressions in their bodies. And what I have often tried to do is apply these, the rasas to our own human embodiment. In other words, if you, if you understand what anger looks like and feels like inside you and, and how you express anger when it's being skillful and when it's being neurotic and really learn how to look into your own anger, manage it, you know, you can begin to work with it rather skillfully. That is to know when you can use your anger to get a job done and when it's better not to. Hmm. When you have an uprush of, of anger or resentment and you know you need to work with it you know, on your own to know what to do. I mean, do you go for a walk and scream? You know, <laughs> do you dance? Which is what I often do when I'm feeling what I think is purposeless anger or anger that I don't want to lay on somebody else, mm-hmm. you know, or do you sit in meditation and, uh, and do what I mentioned earlier, which is, you know, open your awareness, open up spaciousness and, feel the anger in your body and hold space for it and let it dissolve. In other words, how do you work with your own anger or your own grief or your own fear in a way that, that actually lets it move? Yeah. I think that, you know, because emotion literally means energy in motion. So we, we just, we want it to move and right. So you don't want it. You don't want it to get stuck in you and you don't want it to wreck other people's day. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, that's actually really helpful. It's like you said, there are, you can give yourself several different options depending on the day and depending on the moment for working with it. I think you were talking about Swami Muktananda, right? When you were, right? yeah. The thing that came up for me and you said it at the, at the end of the story, you said, you know, this is like a common patriarchal thing. The thing that came up for me is, would it ever be considered, and may, maybe it would, but, but would it ever be considered acceptable for a woman to teach with that much anger, you know? And this gets back to kind of something that I wrote to you in the email, which is like, I think that societally, it's not considered acceptable to see a woman even close to angry. Like when we think about how Hillary Clinton was getting criticized because she wasn't quote unquote smiling enough while she was talking, when she was simply like probably just trying to put together cogent thoughts and facts, you know? So it's like, it's not considered feminine to to express anger. And um, like, I have this theory that it's, um, it's a way of keeping women small. And it's a way of keeping women from recognizing their power and like their quote unquote bigness, you know. And I shared I shared with you that, that little story from my own life, which is, you know, I, I just remember being in therapy one day many years ago and um, the therapist saying to me directly, like, why do you think, why do you think you cry so much? Mm. And, <laughs> and I was really shocked because I thought it was like a very... Um, 
I didn't think it was a very compassionate thing to say at the time. And I thought of her as very com compassionate, um, but I realized it was a really sincere question. And what she was getting at and what she worked on with me for years was she said, I just think it's this way of masking your power from yourself. I think you're actually much more in control and okay and powerful than you are telling yourself. And you're just, it just comes out as like crying. And it was maybe sort of like a defense mechanism that I'd grown up with, you know? So I'm not sure if I really needed to go off tangentially into my own story. <laughs> I, I think that's, I think that's a really, really good point, Andrea. Yeah. I actually think you're, it, it's totally true. And it's also true that women very often cry when we want to scream, when we want to shout. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I, okay. So the, the whole issue of women in power, which is much, which is a big issue. I would say for a lot of us, a lot of women taking power with everything that that entails, which is being willing to be mean, you know, in expressing authority it's not only unacceptable, it's very, very difficult. And I agree with you. I think that crying expresses the frustration that girls often feel about the double messages that we're getting. You know, you should be assertive and stand up for yourself. But only if you're pretty while you do it. Only if you're pretty while you do it, exactly. Only if you do it seductively enough so that nobody's going to be mad at you. <laughs> so, of course, you cry because there's you know, if you cry, often people will give you what you want. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's kind of what I meant, but I didn't realize it was a defense mechanism that I was using. Right. Like I was, which, yeah, was a little manipulative that I didn't even realize I was doing. Well, if you've ever, I mean, I don't know if, if your child does this, but I, I was once taking care of a four-year-old who was the most manipulative kid I ever met. I mean, if you did, if you didn't give her what you want, what she wanted. She never had tantrums. She would just like melt into tears and you would always just uh -huh. give her. And I heard her once talking to her sister saying, you know, I can always make mom do what I want to do. I just cry. <laughs> oh yeah. They learned that so we early. We thought it was hilarious, but, yeah. and it is hilarious, but it's definitely, it's a powerful, it's the great tactic of the powerless, right? Yeah. So with that in mind, like, let's talk about Kali. And, and I know that um, you have a, like a strong connection to her as a, as a female deity. Yeah, I, I think Kali and also Durga, who I believe is probably a better role model. Okay, that's true. Walk around that's true. With. I mean, <laughs> yes, I adore Kali. And Kali, I, Kali's I, pretty extreme. Kali is a little bit uh, out of our comfort zone for many people. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Under certain circumstances, yes. But whereas the Durga Shakti, which I do feel is very much Hillary Clinton's, you know, nature, if you will, I think she's very naturally a Durga. Hmm. Oh, so two things about Durga. First of all, it's very telling, you know, in the Durga myths, which are all about, as you know, her sort of coming out of the mountains to destroy demons. But it's very telling that Durga is hidden, except in times of radical crisis. And I think it's because feminine strength in a traditional society is so hard for people to accept, you know. So 
there are certain circumstances in which you call on the goddess because nobody else can do it. But in the meantime, the rest of the time, let's have that form of the goddess hiding in the mountains. And, you know, and then when we want to relate to the goddess, we'll relate to Lakshmi, who's much more sweet. And so even in mythology, the fierce goddesses are marginalized, you know, essentially. Yeah. Um, At least they exist, though. At least they exist, yes. You know? Exactly, exactly. And and the thing about Durga as a figure, and Kali also, it's just that, you know, in the West we have a sort of a one-sided view of her. But the thing about Durga is that she is she is a form of the great mother. So it's not that she's only a warrior. She's also uh, a nurturer, you know, and she's uh, and a giver of boons and a protector. So in a certain sense, that protective, you know, sort of, tiger mom quality in the feminine seems to be it seems to be a possible role model for women it's very hard for women to be to show fierce strength Mm -hmm. it's just it's just hard and it's um and it lets us in for a lot of criticism Mm -hmm. it often makes our relationships difficult Mm. so I, i mean i believe that if you really do have strong boundaries you know if you've used your anger to create strong boundaries, then often you you don't have to express it, you know, in a, in that fiery way. You you actually just create an environment around yourself where people don't mess with you. Mm. But you know that said, you know you don't want your armor to become a barrier to intimacy. So we're faced with that learning that tai chi, and it is really a tai chi. Yeah, I remember. I like that metaphor, the Tai Chi, like the dance. You know, my, my Tai Chi teacher years and years ago, who was a Chinese guy, used to teach us push hands, you know, that, which is a form of, the, it's one of, it's the Tai Chi fighting, it's part of the Tai Chi fighting form. And it's a very subtle form because you learn how not so much to push as to, to take the other person's energy and use it to to change the space they're in. Mm. But he used to say women are not good at push hands because women are too aggressive. Huh. Women don't know how to, how to use your energy uh, in an assertive way without getting aggressive. <clears throat> yeah, I thought that was interesting. That is kind of fascinating. I would, I wouldn't, that wouldn't necessarily be what I would, uh, the assessment I would expect, but yeah, maybe it's no, I, I, students. Yeah, I know. But it, it, I think it is the result of not, of the fact that for thousands of years, women have not have not been trained in how to how to manage our own aggression. Hmm. In other words, boys historically fight and you know make up and and sort of work with aggression from childhood. Whereas for girls, it's very often we're often brought up to you know to work with it in a masked way. Hmm. Your aggression isn't out front. It's like comes. Side always sideways. Yeah, not as direct. Not as direct, and not therefore um, often used manipulatively. I'm all for directness. I think I think it's great if we can if we can learn to say what we mean and and then let it go. Yeah, I mean, it, can you let let's like wrap up and and if you could kind of maybe I mean I feel like you've laid it out, but maybe summarize like how you work with it or, or advice if someone came to you and, and said like, 
I just get overwhelmed by my anger sometimes. Like what, what would be the, the basic foundational steps? Okay, really good question. I think that, that there are layers of working with anger. The first one is, of course, to recognize that you are angry and to begin to do a, an inquiry so that you, you can start to see the situations that trigger you. And this is where I think psychotherapy is a very good adjunct to yoga if you have the right circumstance. Like if you can, if you can do the kind of inquiry which will trace a feeling back and recognize when it's an old feeling and has nothing to do with the situation, that that will start to help you get some distance from being overwhelmed by anger. So that's, that's the, I would call it the psychological piece. The second piece is, is actually learning how to, to work with it on your own. And I have found there are certain circumstances where it's very useful to go out of the woods and scream, you know, just for sure. But it, but it, it doesn't necessarily get at the source of anger. What I have found does get at the source of anger. And it's, I just think it's the most powerful practice we can do in terms of working with difficult emotions is to take it into meditation. And, uh, and that means you sit when you're feeling angry, you know, and it, it usually, you usually have to find a time to do it. But if you can manage to work with anger when it's hot, you go and you sit or you lie down on your back, hopefully, and you let yourself feel the feeling and you find where it is in your body and, you know, maybe figure out its dimension, see how big it is, see if it's got a color, and then visually imagine space around it. Imagine the space much bigger than your body. And then you you feel the the heat of the anger, the sharpness of the anger, the you know the, the sensation in all of its forms, and you hold it inside the space that you've created. What starts to happen is that the anger begins to morph. It begins, you know, the edges of it begin to dissipate, and you start to feel the energy, the hot energy of the anger, kind of dispersing into the space. In my experience, this this actually removes or dissolves that particular layer of anger. And if you do it, if you do this practice, you get really good at it mm. and you get to where you can do it on the hoof, so to speak. You know, you can actually do it when you're about to say something that you are going to regret later. So I find that's a very skillful practice, as is going deeply into your anger and finding the energy and just letting yourself feel the energy and dance it. That's my, this is my favorite thing to do with anger is like, just turn on, turn on a, you know, Tina Turner and dance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, another thing with, with anger, especially political anger is to, is to channel it like, okay, what, what can I do with this? You know, how can I take this anger and use it to make a difference? And Again, this this demands a willingness to um, to get skillful about how you, how you how you work with your anger, and it and it requires what you were talking about that trans think, looking at it as a as having transformative powers. As how exactly exactly, and and that means that you have to somehow divorce it from your identification with it, right? Which is which is why that practice of holding the anger essentially, you know. Feeling the anger, creating space, and letting the space start to invite the anger to dissolve 
it's a witness practice. You know, it's that is we in order to work skillfully with intense emotions, it's it really makes a difference if you have developed a, an observer, an ability to watch it, to see it without dissociating, you know, which is one of the ways we bypass feelings. It's nice, too, because it takes it out of your mind. Yes. You know, where you can get so stuck if something is where you just replay something over and over again. It, it just, just by imagining it somewhere in your body, you're typically like moving it, I would think. Yes, exactly. And, you know, the, what the Buddhists always say about, you know, let go of the story. To do any of this, we do have to let go of the story. We have to learn how to let go of the story, just to put it aside, <clears throat> you know, to, yeah. to say, okay, um, I get all the reasons I'm angry. There, I have good reasons to be angry. Okay, so, so let it go. I don't have to argue this case, mm-hmm. right? I'm just going to feel how it feels in my body. Yeah, like I'm just going to sit and work with it. Yeah, with exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. And then, as after I've worked with it, then hopefully, you know, if something needs to be done on the external level, then I'll be able to do it skillfully. Right. You yeah. know, or or if not skillfully, uh, at least more skillfully than I could last month. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's we're a work in progress, all of us. I have this friend who uses the expression inner resources all the time. Like she'll say, I just don't have the inner resources to deal with that right now. Or, and on the flip side, you know, I think of these kinds of practices as like building up your inner resources so that when when you're acting in the world, you feel fortified. You feel like you can handle things. Yes. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. It's really true. You do the inner work and little by little you see it how it pays off in your external life. Right. Yeah. Oh, this is a good one, Sally. I love talking to you. <laughs> I know this is fun. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrea. And thank you so much for your your insight and your thoughtfulness and and uh, for creating this podcast. <laughs> it's very beautiful. Thank you. Thanks so much. I love you. Love you too. <laughs> Bye, sweetheart. Bye-bye. Okay, everyone, I hope you enjoyed the interview with Sally. I'll put show notes with links to um, Sally's website and her book, Awakened Shakti, on the show notes page at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 34. And I just looked online. I'm very excited. Sally has an in-person meditation training starting in November of 2017. If I'm fortunate enough, I will be in that training. So I will see you there if the schedule permits. And uh, she also does telecourses. So, you know, similar to online learning, it's it's distance learning. And so if you can't uh, get to see Sally in person, you can do those courses in there. They're really powerful too. Last time I did a podcast with Sally, we talked about fear and it got such a great response. That's why I had her back as a guest. So if you enjoyed this one and there's any other emotionally based topic you want me to to do with Sally down the line, you can let me know. You can leave a review on iTunes and let me know there, or you can follow me on Instagram at Andrea Ferretti and comment there, or you can leave a comment on the show notes page as well. Thanks for listening and connecting. I really love and appreciate hearing from you. And until next week, enjoy your practice. <laughs>